Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can. I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. Today's film is Christopher Nolan's latest, Dunkirk. If you haven't seen the film or you're not aware of the historical events, uh, perhaps you'd like to read up on them or watch the film because we'll be discussing Dunkirk with spoilers. Lloyd, I saw the film in IMAX at uh, the Melbourne Museum and uh, I had that option but I also had the option of 70mm which I still might take up. Uh, How did you see the film? I just watched it at Hoyt's Extreme Screen, you lucky bastard. Yeah, in Canberra, <laughs> we don't have any access to IMAX. Well, the IMAX experience, I'll just give you a little uh, taste of it. Pretty much they uh, they had a example of um, how they project the film in the foyer at Melbourne Museum, and it had a four-platter system with the, the, you know, the film, the IMAX film on top of it. And they have one for left eye and one for right eye. So they need to project it at such a size that um, I guess it's seamless for your eye and you, you don't notice it. But the IMAX experience is 32 metres by 23 metres at the Melbourne Museum. And apparently it's as Nolan intended because he shot it with IMAX cameras. Basically, it's like being projected on the side of a building. And we were maybe 10 rows back, me and my friend Andy. Shout out to Andy. The thing about that is, is there's not enough, uh, it's not far enough back, really, to see the whole screen. Your neck is forced and your eyes are forced to wander left and right. You're made to work a little bit just because there's so much detail in the frames. The opening of this movie uh, is a shot where paper is raining down on the soldiers and they're walking away from the camera. They're in the middle of the frame and the paper is falling from so high up with the IMAX cameras. There's so much of it. And then all the way down to the kind of cobbly streets, you've got to work your eye from north to south kind of in that picture uh, to really get the effect of it, which was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. But then there's shots of, say, Tom Hardy in the cockpit in this, and he's way too big. (laughs) The way Nolan works strapping cameras to um, the sides of planes was great, worked fantastic. But when it's strapped to the cockpit and you're right up close to Tom Hardy's face... He's gigantic in an IMAX screen, and I found that off-putting. He was too big for it. I felt like the camera needed to be further away to get a bit more detail or something. Um, Well, from what you saw of Tom Hardy's face. That's right. I do have on good authority, uh, when you go and watch this 70mm version of this at the Sun Theatre in Melbourne, they give out some 70mm film at the beginning of the screening. And um, if you're the first one to raise your hand, just be ready for it. They'll give you a piece of 70mm film. So just a heads up, there's the inside track. This was also deafening in IMAX, Lloyd, whenever the planes roared overhead. And, uh, yeah, some of the Dunkirk survivors had told Christopher Nolan that it was louder on film than it was in real life. Yeah, I heard that. (laughs) Which was very true in IMAX. Tell me what you thought of the film. Warning to all listeners, we are Christopher Nolan fanboys. (laughs) 
And amazingly, this director for me just hasn't missed at all in his entire filmography. It's really remarkable. All his films are very, very good. If not, they're great. And I think Dunkirk is no exception. He brings forth his absolute love of cinema in this movie. He uses the biggest film ca- cameras he can um, a- a- as possible, like he, like you said, Dave, with the IMAX cameras. He tries to shoot everything in camera as much as possible. That is to say that he tries to avoid CG- CGI any way he can and all the trickery you see on screen, he tries to make that actually on set on the day without adding computer effects afterwards. And with Dunkirk... Amazingly, he tries his best to tell the story without much dialogue. Dunkirk is so much like a silent movie using the human face to tell the story that that's ultimately about survival. The film feels very um, different to most modern day films. And I think that's largely due to the heavy use of practical effects, like by today's um comparison like with um not to put down superhero movies but obviously they use a lot of um cgi effects and everything like that and with the big imax cameras the actual planes and the actual boats that christopher nolan employs in this movie it definitely feels very authentic i think you must see this movie on the biggest screen possible and i'm so envious dave that you got to see it at IMAX. <laughs> I've got the same note written down that it's almost a silent film and I think it makes it really interesting because it's all across their faces, you know, when they're in that survival mode and when the boys don't speak. Uh, did you guess the whole he's French bit before it happened? No. I didn't get it either, but I've spoken to some people who reckon that it was really obvious and they, they guessed it and they thought he was German as well and uh, it didn't occur to me because the way the film is... They don't need to speak. They kind of, they're in it together and um, they do sort of stand around saving each other sort of thing. Yeah, I just, uh, I felt so sorry for them at times. And the bit where they're on the boat and everyone's having their jam and tea and the one guy's standing on, looking out at the ocean and that torpedo hits them after they've been rescued and been through this again. Uh, That torpedo bit, I was like, oh man, just... The frustration that you can't sort of get out of that area. Give these guys a break. <laughs> yeah. I, I felt sorry for all the women in that scene as well. Like they just didn't have any life jackets and all the men just were trapped in that iron coffin. They were doomed, you know. And uh, I don't know if that guy didn't go into the boat because he was too afraid to be locked in a in a boat again or was it a case that he, because he didn't speak English, he, w- he would be afraid that he would get discovered. And didn't want to go in. Either way, it doesn't matter. He he was the saving grace for those for a few men to open yeah. up that hatch. Uh, had he not stayed there, yeah, they all they all would have drowned. But I mean, you've got to take these kind of creative liberties where you can. And um, if you don't have him on the outside there, then that's the end of their their arc. Uh, so this film's divided in three stories, really: uh, the story of the young boys. Uh, the story of this boat uh, that comes back to rescue people and the story of the pilots, which includes Tom Hardy's character. So did you find they spent adequate time with each kind of... for you? 
Well, Christopher Nolan, he, he's a huge fan of Michael Mann, and I, I have the Heat Blu-ray special edition, and he emcees a massive talk between Michael Mann, Al Pacino, and Robert De Niro, and he constantly asks Michael Mann how he did this, how he did that, etc. It's obvious that Christopher Nolan takes a lot of lessons from him, and one thing Michael Mann goes on and on about, and I think he goes too far at times, is that he believes audiences are very smart and you don't need to explain everything to them. Like there are heavy backstories in Michael Mann films that are really only told in maybe an unreferenced scar on an actor's face and that's it. That's it. There's no other reference to it other than the fact that you can see it and you have to piece it together in your head. With Dunkirk, Nolan tells an overlapping narrative and is confident the audience will understand what is happening and piece it all together. Now for me... It didn't work quite as well. I'm very dumb when it comes to plot. I struggled to follow even the most simple of things. Unfortunately, during the most dramatic moments of the movie, I was trying to work out what was happening. And I think it would have been much more effective with a traditional narrative structure. I, I admire Nolan's experimentation with this, but I think... For this movie, it was really unnecessary. And worst of all, it was very confusing, especially for someone as, as slow as me. And I seriously thought at the last part that Tom Hardy had shot down a couple of bombers. And then I was like, wow, he shot down two bombers with no fuel. And then it hit me. Oh, wait, no, this is like a flashback um, to the grounds reaction of Tom Hardy getting that bomber that we saw earlier. And I was just like, oh, okay. And that completely took me out of the movie because I'm piecing it together. But like with all Nolan films, you get so much, as we're doing now, so much um, to discuss after the movie and piece it all together. Um, shout out to the people I watched this with, uh, my brother Josh, Samantha, and Andrew, who all absolutely loved the movie and um, that we were all talking about it nonstop. The time jumps were interesting, and I didn't think it was a film that needed time jumps. <laughs> I was watching it thinking, oh, okay, that really, really big ship, uh, that carrier is sinking, and we're seeing it from various different angles. This was sort of when the oil spill was happening. And I kept thinking, they probably got all these amazing angles, and then thought in editing, I feel like it was a bit like it was found in editing, that they saw, ah, oh, we really want to show it from that angle. Ah, oh, but it's really good from the sky. Oh, but look at it from this. And they probably thought, how many of these can we credibly put in? And the answer all is... All of them. <laughs> yeah, all of them if you tell it from three different points of view. For me, the biggest time jump and the, the one that you can't miss as an audience, it's a real Ed Wood moment, is where Killian Murphy's character is pulled onto the boat and he's shell-shocked. He's been through something. And then when after that torpedo hits, he's in the boat, not, in, not letting them in the boat. And so that jumping from day to night and stuff, I was like, what is happening here? Like, there's something <laughs> off about this editing. And it, I found it really jarring. And so that was the moment that I said to myself, okay, what is going on? And then time jumps, obviously, is the answer. I think that was found in the editing room, like I said. These are not completely necessary storytelling techniques. I completely and I agree. It's a way Nolan's found to kind of make it more of a puzzle, maybe make it more interesting for himself. But the source material, it really strikes me as the kind of thing that would be better A to B. Yeah. Te 
tell us the narrative in a straightforward manner. How did those veterans experience watching this movie like shifted like that? Would they have been as... Con- they, if I'm confused, they're going to be confused, surely. I mean, yes, it could have been more straightforward and maybe that would have been more accessible. But I as well have written down no info at the start, no... The troops are stuck at Dunkirk and blah, blah, blah. Nothing. Yeah, there's no map or anything. <laughs> no German map. army is here. <laughs> I wrote, this is not dumbing it down for the audience. And I wrote, do your own research if required. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the only text on screen was where the boat said one week and the ship said one day and the plane said one hour. And it was like, those are the amounts of time it would take you to escape, presumably. So pretty much this requires the most thinking for a war film for a while just because it doesn't start with anything and it doesn't end with anything really you know you don't get any information beyond what you see on the screen which is really uh an interesting i mean he's got to have final cut doesn't he oh yeah a a director of this caliber i can't think of any director in history that's this successful like maybe howard hawks during his prime i think he's got i think he had 11 hits um or 11 or 15 that were all huge hits um, in a row. So I, I don't know. Um, Christopher Nolan's definitely chasing that. He's hit after hit, for, in my opinion. I think it would have benefited from text at the start or even at the end. Even it doesn't have to be a lot of text, just even uh, the year and the location. <laughs> <laughs> you know, give us a starting point, give us something. But I felt like the way it was time jumping as well, it didn't suit the type of film it is. Uh, um, I'm so glad to hear you say this because. Dave, uh, as you guys listeners know from listening to all our episodes, Dave is a huge fan of time travel movies and being a big fan of Christopher Nolan, I thought you would have, out of everyone, would have pieced it together quickly, very fast compared to average movie-going audiences. And I'm so glad to hear that you were struggling to piece it together as well because, for me, that completely took me out of the movie when everyone was cheering um, after Tom Hardy shoots down that German bo- bomber, I was really struggling at that point. I was like, oh, gosh, what's happening? <laughs> so I wasn't getting with the emotions, and that should have been the strongest emotional impact at that moment. I think the strongest emotional impact for me was when Kenneth Branagh sees, with tears in his eyes, all of the boats and ships yeah. arriving. Uh, I think it really earned that moment, just because at that point we really need a, a win. Well, th- um, this is a British story. Dunkirk is probably the most, one of the biggest moments in in modern history. Like no one knows why Hitler held the armored divisions from that final coup de grace to take them out. Stalingrad. It could have been to the British what Stalingrad was to the Germans. Like the German blitzkrieg was so such an effective strategy. The use of armor, artillery, aerial bombardments, etc. Really changed um, all of the established trench warfare from World War One. And Russia, France, and Britain were not prepared for Germany's all-out onslaught. And no one knows. Like Hitler battered them completely. And there's one little pocket. He he held back the armored divisions, and they didn't take all, all three four hundred thousand um, British soldiers. He let them escape. You know, yes, there were U boats harassing them. Yes, there were bombers harassing them. But the core of the German army didn't clench their fist and obliterate them for whatever reason. And this is such a huge story that's told all throughout schools in Britain. How the the people rose up to rescue these soldiers it's very touching so yes to british people they'll get it really quickly 
are for Americans and Australians who didn't grow up with that. We have the Anzac story. America's got, they've won every war in history, according to their history, <laughs> according to their education. I, I think they're going to really struggle with this movie. And I think just with the mastery and scale of Nolan, it'll get audiences in seats. But I think they're going to be very confused at the beginning. Like you said, no title cards, no under, um you don't really have a, a context of where you are. You have to piece it together. And this is really from Nolan's um, uh, uh, employment of what Michael of Michael Mann's techniques of believing that the audiences will piece it together. And I think like what you're kind of suggesting here, Dave, maybe he went too far at times. I would say uh, there was a conversation with his producers uh, or at least the marketing team. I mean – when there was a final cut of this film available, I'm guessing a lot of suggestions were made that he brushed off, that he said, no, we're not dumbing this down for the audience. No, uh, this is how I want the film, and I'm not adding this, I'm not adding this. I made I'm Dark sure Knight, mofos. What have you done? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's how he gets it. That's how he gets it. He gets final cut because he made Interstellar and because he did the Dark Knight series. You know, he can cast who he wants because he won with uh, Heath Ledger and he's... You know, he's got that track record. He's been successful. Isn't Interstellar the most confusing film to explain to anyone and it makes like $800 million? Like the guy can tell any story. <laughs> yeah, guys, check out our Interstellar podcast if you're oh, interested sorry, in Sorry, I meant Inception. That. I'm so sorry. I mean Inception. <laughs> I'm trying to explain Inception to anyone and, um, you know, it's the hardest story to explain yet he makes it and 800 or 900 million, whatever it grossed, it's just phenomenal. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio helps. <laughs> Let's be honest. Leo films work. So no info at the start. Doesn't dumb it down for your characters, uh, for your uh, audience, sorry. It has all those Nolan traits, though. I love the way he straps a camera to a vehicle, you know, uh, whether it's a boat, plane, just it puts you in the point of view of that. And I don't know why it works, but it does. Well, he's going a lot more handheld now. Christopher Nolan being such a huge Michael Mann uh, fan, I'm shocked that a lot more handheld footage isn't in his movies. Of course, Michael Mann went a lot of handheld uh, camera style post-heat, like pretty much from the insider onwards. Michael Mann has employed a lot of handheld style uh, photography. And I always wondered why, if Christopher Nolan is such a huge fan of Michael Mann, why hasn't he employed the same handheld type of strategy in his films? And one of the reasons is because he couldn't figure out how to get those huge IMAX cameras um, to carry over the shoulder. And in Dunkirk, they figured it out. They were able to rig some sort of equipment to um, so they can put it over the cameraman's shoulders. And now, you know, you see a lot of handheld footage in Dunkirk. So don't be surprised to see that employed in future Christopher Nolan films. One thing I was confused about when I was watching it, uh, you know how they climb into the boat and uh, somebody's using it for target practice. Yeah. I wasn't sure who was using it for target practice. It could have been, it might have been the Allies or the French. <laughs> yeah, well, it might I have mean, been I the British soldiers. The, I'm assuming it was the Germans as well. Yeah. I assume it was the Germans, yeah. But we never really got resolution to that, and uh, we were all just sitting in there, you know, <laughs> seeing the shots happen. Well, either way, you'd be too afraid to find out. Like, you couldn't pop That's your right. head up. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find this wasn't very bloody for a war film? Well, I, I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, this film doesn't retreat to showing you brutal violence to, to make an effective war film because like um, 
uh, like, like you said with the dive bombers, it really shows how much of a psychological effect those dive bombers would have had on the soldiers, although it's exaggerated in this movie, like you said, with the, what the veterans are saying. Th- those um, engines were heightened to, to cause that fear and terror, to strike fear and terror to its enemies, and it really showcases in this movie. It's like when the dive bombers are there, you're like, oh, my gosh, where do I go in the ocean? Oh, there's U-boats there. And you never see a drop of blood, really. Maybe the kid um, being pushed over and his his head hits, um, unfortunately, in, in the... Um, in the ship, in the he, boat, in yeah. the boat, yeah, he hits his head. We're, we're not quite sure what happens. You might see a bit of blood there, but you never see the blood and guts like what was illustrated so heavily in Hacksaw Ridge. And that, that's one one of my issues. Um, a war movie, I, I feel you don't have to show that much violence to show to say how bad war is. And I think Dunkirk is a great example of that. Another one is, of course, Paths of Glory, uh, which I, I won't get into, but that's another fine example. But um, yeah, I'm just happy to see a lot of maturity in this film that it doesn't have to retreat to very gory violence to say hey war is really bad because i feel post saving private ryan um which is a fantastic opening 20 minutes probably some of the best war scenes ever ever put to film it is so horrific and you immediately get get the idea was um i hope war never happens because it's so horrific in this film just the struggle for survival really illustrates how terrible war is without retreating to, you know, really graphic violence. Yeah, I mean, I, I did compare this with Hacksaw Ridge just because I suppose that's the most recent war film I had seen and it was so obvious and notable that Dunkirk didn't require blood but got the message across, which I think is to its credit. Uh, and that kid on the boat, you know, how he falls and hits his head or he's pushed or whatever, I did find it fascinating the way he was treated um, after his death and how they covered him up. You know, he says, be careful with him. And they're like, he's dead and just casual throwaway line. And he's like, yeah, well, be careful with him. And how Killian Murphy's character says, oh, is he going to be all right? And he tells him, yeah, yeah, he'll be fine. I love that because he he knew he was really broken. And if he had told him, no, you killed him, it would have really sent him over the edge. And the fact that he knew that that, that kid brilliantly saw, like, I, I can't hurt that. I can't tell him that because that, that'll really put him over the edge. And his father looks at his son and nods in acknowledgement, you did the right thing. That was yeah. beautiful. Mastery storytelling by Nolan there. And Mark Rylance, who plays uh, Mr. Dawson, the, the man driving the boat. He there, won the was... Academy Award recently for Spy. Yeah, for um, Bridge of Spies. Sorry, sorry, he robbed the Academy Award <laughs> against Sylvester Stallone for Creed. They don't, they don't reward a lifetime of work, you bastards. I actually thought he took it from uh, Ruffalo for uh, Spotlight. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> I did like the fact that most of these guys in the film, the young guys, are unknowns. But I do want to talk about this stunt Say casting it, of Harry Styles. Say it! <laughs> Does it take you out of the film to see Harry Styles in the film? Doesn't it take you out of it? Don't you notice and go, that is Harry Styles? i got to confess. Even if, he, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, even, even if he's acting well, um, you still look at it and you realise it's him. And doesn't that take you, like, break down one wall? 
Oh, well, I, I can't speak for this because I don't know anything about One Direction. I'm embarrassed to say. Um, even, uh, like, I only realised towards the middle. I'm like, oh, okay, that's that pop star everyone was talking about. And I, I said to my brother at the end, I go, yeah, it's interesting. Harry Styles did okay. And he goes, who's Harry Styles? The One Direction? Oh, which part did he play? You know, he didn't, my brother didn't <laughs> even notice. Um, but, yeah, for my friend Andrew, he noticed it right away from the beginning. I'll say one thing about his casting because I can't comment like it took me out of the movie, him, his presence there. But the casting of this film I think is really interesting how young the the, the army is. Um, you, it, it really does feel like kids are being sent to war. You know, and and they're they're so young. We're talking between seventeen all the way till twenty two. These are babies fighting these horrific wars. You know, and a lot of war movies are always thirty, forty year olds playing these early twenty, um, twenty year olds, and uh, it just goes to show how much authenticity um, Christopher Nolan wants in his films by casting these young faces. Because that's one of the things I got from this movie: is these kids are just trying to do their best to survive. That's what they're doing, whether it's just finding a blanket and covering over themselves to, to stay warm or fighting amongst themselves who's going to get out, uh, jump out of the um, ship to, to run and, and try to um, detract the Germans. You know, it, um, it, it's really exceptional. You really get the sense of how awful this war was to, to these poor kids. I'm just going to jump on the Harry Styles thing. I think he did a fine job. You know, in terms of the way they cast these young men, they're all brunettes with brown eyes and there's a similarity to them all. They, you know, they're just kind of average kids. The fact that Harry Styles is in it, I think um, he's got kind of a Mick Jagger look. He's got this kind of something about him and there's kind of an X Factor to him, uh, which is funny because I think they won the X Factor. Oh, no, they didn't win the X Factor, but whatever, One Direction. The fact that he's in it, it kind of feels like stunt casting and obviously Christopher Nolan says he doesn't know who he was and he just did well in the audition and oh whatever. I'm sure Chris <laughs> yeah but it doesn't hurt to have him in the movie in the same way it doesn't hurt that Tom Hardy played the pilot even though you can't see his face much <laughs> and Michael you know. Caine I think was one of the voices the radio control that. Yeah. yeah at the time I was like oh was that Michael Caine's voice it's so recognizable yeah it doesn't hurt the movie to have Harry Styles in it is what I'm going to say uh, although I think he did a fine job and also, I thought, oh, well, they're not going to kill Harry Styles. For some reason, <laughs> I kept thinking that. Because wouldn't there be an uproar if you went to watch a movie and Harry Styles was in it for, you know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and he died? Well, th this isn't uh, a new thing to, to cast pop singers in movies. They've been doing it since the silent era, really. I can't give an example of the silent films, but I know they did it. I'll just give one example of, like, the 50s, like Elvis Presley. I know he, he starred in movies out of vehicles for Elvis Presley, but I'll give another one, like Dean Martin, um, for example. Like, you know, they always cast pop singers um, in movies. And, you know, if they're handled well, they, they, they can get away with it. And I thought um, Harry Styles was handled pretty well here. But if you were a fan of... Um, One Direction, yeah, he just really sticks out. Uh, I think uh, some of the best ca um, casting of pop singers is definitely Tulane Blacktop, a cult movie directed by Monty Hellman. That 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 movie's just absolutely exceptional. Um, my favourite thing about Dunkirk um, were the aerial battles. Like, I've never seen anything like this in, in movies. Like, uh, I can't imagine. I'm so envious you got to see this in IMAX. It's ridiculous. Like, there was so much detail, like, especially with how the pilot is riding in chalk how much fuel he has left and he has to ride it on the on the 
dashboard and um, the aerial combats were really exciting like gunning them down you just see the smoke and that's the effect the gun the machine guns have had on the airplanes just fantastic and that gosh damn ticking of the soundtrack I was gripping the seat the whole entire time I was like oh <laughs> mm. you're right um it, it all works really well I love that soundtrack um at the time I was like gosh this is kind of repetitive but that's what works for it is that it is you know, it is composed specifically to make that emotion happen. That gripping emotion that you're talking about, also the kind of uh, TikTok marching kind of, there's, there's something about it. Uh, I really enjoyed seeing it at IMAX. I really did. I haven't been to IMAX here in Melbourne and um, I went once in Sydney, but I saw like, you know, an underwater thing. Terence Malick uh has made a doco that's narrated by oh, is Brad this about Pitt. the beginning of the universe or something yeah and that was one of the previews before the movie and it is all shot in IMAX and it looks spectacular and it's a really amazing lead-in to Dunkirk when you're watching the film yeah I was pretty impressed uh with IMAX and it's definitely a really good way to see this look apparently Dunkirk is the front runner for the best picture, Oscar Lloyd. Do you want to speak to this? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it hasn't been the complete year yet. I'm sure they're saving a lot of mega hit films um, towards the end of the year. That's usually December, early January is the key. Like how we saw La La Land just pop out of nowhere, you know, um, last year. So I, it's too early to say. What do you think? I feel in my waters, if you will, my instinct is that the best picture this year has to be something optimistic. You know, in this kind of Trump world where there's a lot of negativity, I really feel like it has to be very uplifting Well, that Al Gore film. film might be, you know, one of the things everyone's going to talk about. His recent one about global warming, he's made a sequel to The Unconventional Truth or something it, true. It's called yeah. the, uh, the Inconvenient Sequel or An Inconvenient Sequel which I think will still kind of depress us. <laughs> like, <I don't, laughs> oh, you're saying a really optimistic movie. Yeah, I movie. feel like the best picture has to be something that, you know, like a musical or like an uplifting kind of movie, puts you in a really good headspace. Uh, or a big uh, drama where it ends so positively or, like, brings you to tears. Something very emotional and heartfelt. I don't know what it is yet, but I don't know that it's Dunkirk. Um, this feels to me like great use of practical effects, you know, really good costume, probably win that. Uh, maybe soundtrack nominated, director maybe nominated. Um, it could even be nominated for Best Picture, but I just don't feel like it's the film that will win. And that's just on instinct. I just feel like like it's the tiny details that we're talking about and how maybe you did need to dumb it down a bit more for American audiences and stuff. But there's so much in this from the way they've got the sound right of the sound of the, you know, artillery or that tiny detail of the man who they watch swim out to sea on his own, you know, he's just had enough and he's just suicidal and, you know, you can see land at home and you just want to get there and he's just given up waiting. I mean, it obviously it could be the one. It certainly feels like a front runner at this stage. Here we are, it's, a, it's August, you know. <laughs> We're looking at February, so it's a long race and it's, um, it's come out strong at the start. But in horse racing, for example the one in the lead at this point in the race drops off. So it's not going to be in the forefront of people's minds. Yeah, no, Christopher Nolan, unfortunately, hasn't... I don't think he's been nominated for Best Director, but he did get a nomination for Best Screenplay, I think, for The Dark Knight, the year... Um, 
uh, Heath Ledger won it posthumously. Posthumously, uh, he won the Academy Award. Um, yeah, uh, I think he got nominated for Best Screenplay, but he's never been nominated for Academy Award. And I, that's why I always say don't look at the Academy Awards as an indication if a person's a really good director or anything like that. It just means he hasn't hit a film that's hit the zeitgeist of the time. Like usually a cult, you know, it takes a long time for for uh, the establishment to recognise a real classic. And I just feel every one of Christopher Nolan's films have been an absolute classic. For those interested, I Am Heath Ledger is a really interesting doco about Heath Ledger's life. And uh, I watched it recently. He was so much more than just acting. He seemed to chronicle and document everything uh, with videos, with photos. He made all these unique kind of moments and was seemed to be wanting to capture every second of his life. And uh, a lot of that is included in the doco and this kind of spirit he had. Is Christopher Nolan in that documentary? <laughs> he is not. No. Uh, they did speak with uh, Ben Harper and, uh, you know, Naomi Watts and a lot of people who were close to him, a lot of his good friends who travelled with him and stuff. His kind of little entourage. But it does feel like there was a lot more room to, en- to engage with people. Uh, they speak to Ang Lee, who directed Brokeback Mountain, but they never speak to Michelle Williams, who's obviously the mother of Heath Ledger's child, Matilda. And uh, there's there's a lot of room where blanks could be filled in but, um, but aren't. So it's very solid, but uh, I guess it doesn't feel like it covers everything because you don't talk to everyone. I mean, you do to talk to his sister and his dad and his family and uh, it, it's kind of, um, I suppose, authorised in that way, like a stamp of approval because you've got the, the family, but... Yeah, there are pieces missing, so you don't get to know it all. But it's very interesting for those who want to know. Ultimately, I think Dunkirk was great. And I wanted to ask you, Lloyd, have you ever been in a cinema where people applaud at the end? Yes, uh, Kill Bill Volume 1. I I won a ticket to an advanced screening, so it was packed full of... um Tarantino fans and at the very end of that movie everyone clapped and laughed it it was it was awesome and I love that when that happens in a movie for me obviously I'm not including times when the director is there or the writer is there (laughs) and and you feel an obligation to do so uh for me the one that sticks out is Shrek uh the first one uh the first time I saw Shrek in cinema um everybody burst into applause at the end and it was such a kind of positive experience that they couldn't help themselves and uh, you know that's just that's awesome yeah it was it was such a nice feeling in this dunkirk screening i went to at the imax one gentleman applauded (laughs) (laughs) and it felt like you should have joined in to support him dave it felt like he was starting an applause to try and get people to join in but by the time i realized he was doing it he'd stopped oh no so it was like 12 claps tops uh (laughs) And they were fast too, like, everybody come and join in. Come on, quickly, let's clap. <laughs> and then he'd stop and no one else had joined in. And then it was awkward to join in. So no one joined in. And it was such a strange moment. I just wanted to share it. You, you helped make that strange, Dave, by not uh, joining in and clapping. Yeah, I guess I did. Uh, I think he was probably a strange guy. But uh, <laughs> Look, uh, we talk about Christopher Nolan not taking a step wrong. He's had a very good run so far but he is down as the writer of the remake of memento which obviously was a success the first time i think with guy pierce and i'm very cautious to see it sounds like a disaster dave 
Yeah. I was did you know so- they re- remade um, Straw Dogs into a movie? No, you didn't, did you? Because no one does. No one watches shitty little remakes, and this is Memento remake is going to be one of them. What if it was um, the exact same film but with Leonardo DiCaprio? I'd probably have to watch it. <laughs> is that what's <laughs> so- happening? I don't know what's happening, okay. but I'm saying Nolan has the power to pull an A-list star. You know, if suddenly Brad Pitt or somebody is playing the character Guy Pierce played, then that will overshadow... So, uh, is, is, sorry, is Nolan actually going to direct it? I don't know if he'll direct it, but he's down as writing it at the moment. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just based... They'll have to credit him because it's based off a movie that was written by Christopher Nolan. Wouldn't that be yeah. the case? Christopher Nolan based off Jonathan Jonathan Nolan's short story. Time will tell, I suppose, his level of involvement. But um, Well, we could have a Girl with the Dragon Tattoo moment. Like, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is kind of a remake because it was made in Europe only a few years before David Fincher got his hands on it. The difference right. between that remake and any other is David Fincher, you know. So if a great, great director gets his hands on the Memento script and goes, yeah, I can remake this and do wonders with it, you know, I'll watch it, but I don't, you've got Christopher Nolan directing the original. Like, how yeah. can you top that? That's insane. Like I was about to say, I think a great director already made that film. Yes, hundred percent. I don't. I don't want to see a remake of Back to the Future. Like, I don't want to see a remake of Memento. Um, but let's wait and see, and we'll as details come to hand. Maybe it'll be a reimagining, and maybe it's something we can live with. But at the moment, I'm very skeptical. Well, Christopher Nolan uh, made some comments about Netflix recently and about how he didn't like their uh, model and how the kind of thing they were doing was bad for cinema. And I think this experience I've had with Dunkirk has really pointed out how he believes in the cinematic experience. And I was talking after the film uh, with Andy, who I went to see the film with, and uh, we were saying pretty much you don't get this at home. You don't get the kind of walk around afterwards talking, discussing the film. Uh, it's not the same, you know. Um, you don't sit with people and you, you don't get that one guy applauding or, you know, that feeling that you're looking at the side of a building or that the bombers are too loud. I mean, there's something about going to the movies. What I really like about it in this modern age is that you don't tend to look at your phone out of respect for the other audiences and a lot of people don't follow this. So it's like two hours of escape. Yep. You know what I mean? You, and if it's a good movie, you really do disappear. Like, oh, wow, I was all of a sudden in 1939, 1940, um, World War Two. you know, I, I, for, for two hours. Um, you know, that, that's remarkable, uh, you know, in this modern age where you're constantly connected to social media. And I think this succeeds in that sense. Um, it's a real cinematic experience. I think I agree with you. People should see it at the movies. And uh, it's already made its money back. And, and I think saying something is an Oscar frontrunner and giving it lots of five-star reviews obviously helps get people to the movie, but hopefully it it's it's still clear what's going on and hasn't, you know, had that effect where it time jumps too much and it's confusing. Because it, it's not as clear as it could be and it frustrated me a little bit. I just thought it should be an A to B narrative. I, I completely agree. I think that was a misstep, but not big enough to go, gosh, Dunkirk, what a pity. What an absolute disaster. It should have been one of the great movies. No, I'm not going to go into that that um, opinion of the film. I think it was a, a terrific, absolutely terrific experience. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, a lot of fun uh, in terms of like watching a master director continue to 
hone his craft. I enjoyed the acting and at the beginning how it just seems like the story of a soldier who's just trying to take a shit. <laughs> <laughs> He's just trying to find a place to take a shit, you know. Use your helmet, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he just can't catch a break, you know. <laughs> Honestly, it was very immersive in IMAX, and if people get the chance, it's a really good way to see it. Um, I love that the, the speech of Churchill, and there's you know yes. at the end, and um, they think I, I'm pretty sure that guy was blind when he was giving them blankets, and then he goes, "Oh, that guy couldn't even look at us," and they thought there were um, everyone was so ashamed of them because. Um, it was such it a military, yeah, it was yeah. such a military disaster. But it was actually a great triumph that they were able to get out from the clutches of being destroyed by the great Nazi war machine, sort of thing. And that that when you hear Churchill's voice, that means oh, Churchill's voice, Churchill's words, um, that really means so much to the British. And for those brief moments, we really do feel the British British's plight and the that the fact that they have to fight. Um, this European superpower. They really have to fight on the beaches, on the land. And that was just absolutely remarkable because, again, Dunkirk is a very British story. It means so much to the British people, just like what the Anzacs were to us and gosh knows what else to the Americans. It's a very, very important story to them. And to, to Christopher Nolan's master for, masterly credit, he did um, convey that in the movie. And I like how um, the words of Churchill came from the soldier uh, and from the everyman. From a youthful voice. Uh, yeah, yes. good point. A hundred percent, yeah. And I like the fact that they gave uh, George, who died on the boat, a moment. Where yeah, they put it in that the was paper. beautiful, yeah. Yeah. So it tried to have an optimistic end. And the fact that Kenneth Branagh stays to make sure the French get out, the fact that they got so many soldiers out when basically the government had said, oh, well, we hope 35,000 make it back yeah, uh, when, yeah. when there were 400,000 or whatever it was. Um, and that was the British people that got them mm, out. That's beautiful. Yeah, that it was like a real, uh, you know, the story of how they helped each other. Um, when all else failed, they got the boats and went and got them themselves. It's like uh, picking up your friend <laughs> when he's <laughs> stuck oh, somewhere. Oh, it's all right, I got you, mate. <laughs> yeah. There's something really nice about that. Nice companion, like a uh, mateship to the story. If it and was an Australian story, you'd always have an ALF guy going, get on the flaming boat, hurry up! <laughs> <laughs> uh, very nice. <laughs> Just a second, mate, in my head. I don't know ultimately if it will win the Oscar, but, I mean, time will tell. We will uh, cover off the Oscars later on and, and discuss the films in the lead-up. Uh, if you have a film you think we should check out, you have an idea what's going to be the front runner for an Oscar, you can get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook. The links are at podmeifyoucan.com. If you want to discuss Dunkirk with us there, be my guest. Uh, let us know what you thought. Uh, as well, we've got a whole back catalogue of the, these podcasts. You can check them out at podmeifyoucan.com. There's a search field, or you can go back through the archives there if you uh, want to find Interstellar or uh, The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I think we did The Dark Knight as well. Some Nolan films there. You can check out what we thought. And I believe we talked about following his uh, original film as well. As well, we have a YouTube channel. We discuss obscure movies with famous stars in them. And uh, hopefully you guys can check out some of those videos. We find, uh, how should I put it, uh, the Stallone film you've never heard of <laughs> that's not his porno. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's Brad Pitt movies on there. There's uh, a ton of them, nearly up to 150, basically. And um, uh, mentioning Tarantino, uh, I covered off his 
original film uh, as episode 100, which might be worth a look if you're interested in that. Otherwise, thanks very much for listening to Dunkirk. If you listen to us in iTunes, feel free to give us a rating. That helps other people find the podcast. And uh, we will talk to you next time on Pod Me If You Can. Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Pod Me If You Can. Movie Reviews.